Mr. Chair, we do need six. Yeah. Can everyone hear me okay? I think we have six, so that's good. Oh, there's Dana. So there's seven. I see seven right there. There's seven. Excellent. All right. Well, um, let's get the show on the road, I guess. Are you guys ready at City Hall? This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. I am pulling up the Zoom meeting procedures, but other than that, we are ready to go. Thank okay. you, Mr. Well, Chair. Great. Thank you, Leah. This is Monty Sokup. I'm the chair of the Affordable Housing Advisory Board. This is our regular meeting on April 11, 2022. I am going to take the roll so we can establish a quorum and then we'll get started. So uh, here we go. And I'm going to, as we take votes and whatnot, I'm going to read in the same order. So kind of take note who you're after. So we're ready to go. Thomas Howe. Present. Thomas Allen. Here. Shannon Reed. Not here. Rebecca Buford. Here. Sarah Waters. Here. Dana Ortiz. Here. Uh, oh, I lost count here. <laughs> Christina Gentry. Not here. Erica Zimmerman. Not here. Shannon Ori. Ari, not here. Ron Gages. Here. Edith Guppy. Not here. Monty Sokup here. That is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I believe. Oh, and there's Shannon Reed. Yeah, sorry. Reed. Sorry so for the delay. Shannon Reed here. Count her present. That's eight. All right. Shannon Shannon Howry's also present. Oh, Shannon Howry's. Excellent. So that's nine. All right. So I believe we have a quorum. And Leah, I'm going to turn it over to you to read our fabulous statement. And we'll go from there. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I'm going to provide a few procedural reminders for the virtual meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on City's YouTube channel and public access channel, channel uh, cable. Cable channel 25, I'm sorry. During the meeting, when you're not participating, please mute yourself by clicking on the microphone icon found on the lower left-hand side of the Zoom menu next to the video icon. When you're muted, a red line will appear over the icon. Muting your microphone during the meeting will make it easier for everyone to hear. You'll just have to remember to unmute if and when you want to speak. In some cases, I may mute or unmute people as needed to minimize distractions during the meeting. Please remember to state your name every time you speak for the benefit of the those listening remotely. You can turn your video camera on or off by clicking the video icon in the menu. For the purposes of this public meeting, when you are participating in the meeting, please keep your video on. When you are not participating in the meeting, it is okay to turn your video off. You will still be able to listen to the meeting when your video is off. You'll just have to remember to turn your video back on when you're participating. Turning your video off when you're not participating will help make sure that the active meeting participants can be seen on the screen. In some cases, I'm 
may turn someone's video off if they are not actively participating to avoid distraction during the meeting. You can always turn your video back on. If you're participating by phone, you can click star six to unmute your phone. For those using Zoom, somewhere on your screen, you will see a choice to toggle between speaker and gallery view. Speaker view shows the active speaker, gallery view tiles all the meeting participants. Board members and city staff members, you must state your name and title each time you speak. All motions will need to be stated clearly. After a motion is made and seconded, the chair will call on board members individually to provide their vote. Mr. Chair, you will then need to announce whether the motion carried and the count of the vote. When public item is sought, Individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise your hand feature. Windows and Mac users can access this feature through the participants button at the bottom of the screen. Android and iPhone users can access this feature through the more button located at the bottom right hand corner of the screen. For those calling in by phone, you may dial star nine. Individuals will be called upon by name in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. When you're called on, please unmute your listening device and state your name before speaking. The chair will then call for in-person public comment for those without access to technology options. Staff will present you to the podium to speak following social distancing protocols. The regular three minute time limit will apply. Thank you. All right, Ms. Monty Sogup Chair, thank you, Leah. Appreciate that. Um, at this point, we're gonna open it up for public comment. So I don't know if there's anybody in the commission room this is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. There's nobody present for public comment. And I don't see anyone raising their hand. All right. So any uh, board members have any comment? Seeing none, we're going to close public comment. And we'll move to approving the minutes from the March 14th meeting. Uh, there's printed versions and uh, video online. I would entertain a motion to approve the minutes. This is Tom Allen, Tom Allen yep. member large. Um, I vote to approve the minutes. Second, Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commission. Okay, so we have a, a motion and a second. Is there any comments on the minutes? Okay, seeing none, we'll close the comments and call roll for the vote. Uh, Thomas Howe? I abstain, I was not present. Okay. Uh, Thomas Allen? Approved. Say that again. Approve. Approve, okay. Shannon Reed? Approve. Rebecca Buford? Approve. Sarah Waters. Approve. Dana Ortiz. Approve. Shannon Aury. Approve. Ron Gacious. Approve. Monty Sokup. Approve. Motion passes eight. A four, one abstention. All right, we will move on to the agenda items. Uh, I think our next thing is to receive a presentation from Burt Nash uh, regarding supportive housing and uh, their goals and this is kind of an educational uh, uh, opportunity for us as we prepare for our uh, retreat in a couple in a month or so and, and talk about uh, goals for next year so i think this is matthew falk i see him joining us uh take it away matthew 
Thank you, Monty, and thank you all for the opportunity uh, to speak and present. Um, as Monty said, I, I'm here just to kind of present a bit of our planning and uh, future looking uh, projects and prospects regarding supportive housing. Um, I provided a, a PowerPoint to, to Leah. Is that, is that available, Leah? Arizona Affordable Housing Administrator. It is. I added it to the agenda this morning. Um, members may need to refresh their screen if it's not showing up. I can also share my screen if you'd like, or you can share your screen, Matthew. Okay. Um, whichever you would like. I, I guess I can share my screen. Okay. And here we go. Wait, is that got it visible okay um so this is really about our permanent support housing project that we're developing currently for the 2022 year and uh, we'll be targeting arpa funds um that's the most the soonest deadline that we will be uh, meeting which is may 2nd um and if possible uh well depending on how that goes we would definitely be looking to affordable housing advisory board application. Um, I, I want to be quick. Uh, I was given a 10 minute uh, time length, so I'll just head into this. Um, in respect to the kind of overall spectrum of services or the cycle of services that we provide, you know, supportive housing, permanent supportive housing is the project that we're developing now. As you know, we have a, a transitional housing project, the transitions program, which was completed and just onboarded last March. Um, and, and along with our bridges housing project, um, you know, the cycle is that we, our homeless outreach program, as well as other uh, mental health programs work with people uh, who are homeless. Uh, I just have a depiction here, the streets. Uh, we work with them if they're, whether they're in shelters, et cetera, um, to connect them with housing. Uh, this would be a project that can either connect them directly to permanent housing, if, if, if that's the, the path they need to go, or we can, would connect them with transitional housing and then they would transition over to permanent housing. Um, the one thing that we definitely identify today is that uh, there is a lack of permanent housing options uh, to which people may transition after they enter into our traditional housing facility. So uh, permanent housing is something that we specifically need to continue opening up bed space and prevent a bottleneck within the transitional model of, of housing services. And throughout this uh, cycle, we, uh, as, a, as a center, as a service agency, we're providing mental health services. We'll be doing that moving forward under the community or certified community behavioral health clinic model, which is a uh, new type of, well, it's not new, but the state of Kansas has adopted CCBHC as the model for community mental health care moving forward. And we are seeking CCBHC certification and all the things that uh, fall with under that within that umbrella. I, I will spare you the uh, the nuances there. It is uh, it entails a whole lot. So uh, if if you're interested in getting a presentation on what CCBHC is and how it will impact our local community and how it will actually expand and enhance services for our local activity or local community, please reach out to me and I can arrange to have uh, a presentation to you. Um, so permanent housing is a is a significant part of what we look to do moving forward. Um, we are looking to increase our ownership of permanent housing, supportive housing for this target population. 
Um, so this is a part of our model of, of growth. Uh, we have transitional housing. We would like to increase our permanent housing options for people to transition into. Uh, our target population are people who have a severe mental illness, who have low or no income, 30% uh, AMI or less, who are chronic or severely housed, have severe housing insecurity. Um, and, uh, you know, we, you know, our goal is to have 100% of those recipients in this specific project uh, be LDCHA uh, subsidy uh, recipients or HUD subsidy recipients. Um, past this project, we look to design housing that uh, might be, would be available for folks who might not necessarily qualify for HUD subsidy, but this specific project, uh, we we would like to, um, you know, make 100% of folks who, who reside there are folks who qualify. Um, oops. Um, the service model that we we want to deliver at this site is uh, one in which we will have dedicated on-site case management. So we will have a case manager who only works with the folks in this housing program. Um, we are looking to realize between 20 to 25 or, or so units. That's roughly the full caseload of a case manager. So we, we, we want to kind of keep this project to the size that is appropriate for uh, the supportive service provider who would be associated with the project and not to, not to ask them to do uh, more than would normally be asking a, a service provider. Um, we are looking to design a site that has some commercial space on a ground floor. That way we would like to expand our, we have a supported employment program and we would like to be able to provide employment services within this facility and work with a potential business who might occupy that ground, that ground space to provide employment opportunities for the residents of the facility who have interest in employment. Um, employment is extremely important uh, for you know, a sense of well-being. It's uh, important for uh, self-sufficiency. It's, it's important for uh, integration into the community and a sense of purpose and belonging. Um, and in the mental health field, people who are able to work tend to be healthier and have a, a healthier mental health uh, outlook and spectrum. Um, we have developed a pretty extensive pro forma for this specific facility. Um, this is based upon a 20 unit single bedroom um, model. Uh, I think something to note here is that, you know, we're setting aside um, per unit a, uh, on a 20 bedroom model uh, based on $175 a month for maintenance, $175 for utilities, $100 for insurance. You know, we're setting aside $100,000, roughly $108,000 a year um, our total costs for, for staffing this are included, um, other expenses like, you know, mileage, um, some flex funds to help residents get some things they may need some financial assistance to help get, uh, is all included in that. And, uh, you know, we calculate, we would still have around a net of around $110,000. And it's our commitment that we would take that money and bank it to apply only towards future housing developments. So, you know, every two or three, four years, we would have enough funding to build another permanent supportive housing project or another housing project for the target population. Um, it's our plan that this, this project would serve as a cornerstone for sustainability for Burt Nash to uh, begin sustainably developing our own project our own housing and significantly reduce, if not eliminate our need for outside funding, like for example, from AHAB or another agency to provide the capital to, um, you know, build another project. So 
we want to be self-sustaining and we want to be um, self-sufficient as as an agency and as a developer and, and and you know our we are looking to build a financial model that allows us to do this as independently as we can and uh, so this would be a cornerstone project in trying to get there um, this is not the design of the project. This is not a rendering of the project, but in some sense, it's in the ballpark of kind of what a project might look like. Um, you would have commercial space on the bottom with residential space on top in a downtown area, ideally uh, somewhere um, because of the commercial venue uh, and wanting to make that as successful as it can. Um, project one, and, and uh, I'll provide you a caveat here, uh, would be a mixed use, you know, residential of commercial space, 20 to 30, 20, 25 units, um, uh, 20 units plus a cafe or something on the bottom floor would, is projected to cost around 4 million. Um, one thing I will say is that um, in working with the city and looking at trying to partner with them about a site, um, you know, the city has announced voice that they would like uh, a project downtown that has a type of grocer option. You know, the city wants um, a grocery store or some kind of grocery option in the downtown area. Um, and if we were to pursue a model uh, or a project of that magnitude, it would considerably increase the cost of, of the project. But um, that does, on the employment side of things, a grocery is attractive to us because it provides a wider spectrum of jobs or employment opportunities for our clientele than uh, you know a smaller cafe type of uh, occupation might provide. Um, it just uh, you know there's some cost in that, but that's some context. Um, we've again had conversations with the city about sites. Um, uh, sites in the downtown area are explicitly prioritized. You know a grocery option. Uh, that's what the city would like. Outside of the downtown area, uh, location is prohibitive in respect to a commercial space. Um, we did and were eyeing a, a property in, in the Picking neighborhood, but that property apparently is not going to be available for several years until probably 2025, 2026. So that probably that takes that property off the table. Um, I think one of the things, uh, other than us provide, you know, asking for funding, one of the things that um, they have to do to help us in this project is work with the city to um, help us identify further site options or make recommendations about site options. Um, that's the, really the one thing that is, uh, that's where we're at now. We're, we're ready to get a site and that will drive uh, the design of the facility that, that, we're, that we you know, create moving forward. We have an initial design concept. Uh, we have an architect who's designed uh, that kind of uh, initial floor plan, but there's not anything else we can do design-wise until we get a site. Uh, the site will really dictate what we, you know, our, our further progress. So we can't really do anything else in respect to the project itself until we get a site. And um, we have also talked with Morris Memorial Hospital and, you know, they are looking at possible um, land usage and the environments of the hospital. Um, that is a little bit, uh, that is nebulous in some way and we will continue to explore that. I think um, some unknowns there, some challenges that could be, uh, could be experienced there that if the hospital wants to, you know, benefit from that, if they want to liquidate that property and receive you know, profit or uh, money for that, depending on the cost that they're they're looking to receive, um, that may be prohibitive there. There is a second project that's come up, 
And that project is to potentially acquire the O'Connell Lodge. The, the owners of the O'Connell Lodge, I've spoken with them personally. Uh, I went down there and had a conversation with them. Uh, they've said that they would be interested in selling the motel for around 2.7 million. Um, the, I, I will tell you, uh, just this morning I was meeting with my team and we made the decision that we are not gonna pursue this as, as just an agency. We, we're gonna stick with our original project of 20 to 25 units. And we're, you know, we're, cause we had been, we were thinking of uh, possibly shifting this project to this and uh, shifting our uh, ARPA application over to an application pursuing this project, but we've decided not to do that. That being said, I still think it's important for the community to know that the owners are willing to sell. Um, and I think that could potentially, you know, just eyeballing it, uh, there's probably 40 to 50 units of housing that could be realized through rehabilitation project there. Um, the owners asked for 2.7 million in that. Um, so this is just a little bit of a synopsis on that, but um, as we are not pursuing that, um, I'll kind of be, leave it, uh, be that as it may, leave it to the side. Um, and that's my uh, presentation. So. Try to be concise. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. That was very uh, small to soak up your. Um, so I have a question, and certainly I'm going to open up to anybody on the committee that has questions. Um, has this has the city been able to identify sites downtown that are, are possibilities? Are you working on half a dozen sites or one site or anything like that? Well, we've 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 had a discussion and we we've looked at several sites. Um, the, the city has not committed to anything in respect to a partnership, um, and I think the challenge is that the sites that are a priority for the city, um, you know, they they're larger. For example, um, a parking lot, a consolidated parking lot, and one of the larger ones, uh, I guess, like the parking lot behind um, the antique mall. Um, for example, a kind of a larger space. Um, we This project, as we originally designed it, is not that kind of, it's this much smaller project with a much smaller footprint. Um, another issue um, are the environs of a given lot. Um, we have talked about the parking lot at the corner of um, 10th and Vermont Street. And, uh, you know, that's within the environs of three historical buildings of three churches there. I think there are some challenges there. Also, parking is a challenge. Uh, they don't want to necessarily um, you know, get rid of a bunch of parking. So being able to realize a project or work with a project on another site that may also include parking, for example, um, that would, uh, you know, mitigate the parking loss on any given site. But those are some challenges that we're facing immediately. Um, I think all of them are, in, to some extent, uh, challenges that we can overcome, but they're, I guess, in respect to the city specifically, um, I think they're interested. I think that they're, that they've, they've been very supportive, um, but not said, okay, let's, let's target this specific site and taking that next step. Uh, we have also talked to the Sunflower Development Group, who is the group that did the Merck um, grocery store in Kansas City, Kansas, to just get further information about what that might look like, because we don't know. And uh, they've also done several other grocery stores uh, in partnership with Wichita um, 
And, and so they have a bit of knowledge around what that might take. Um, for example, the Merck grocery store, and they did say that this was, you know, the, the creme de la creme of grocery stores that they built for uh, downtown Kansas City was a, a $10 million project. And we certainly would not be looking to do something like that. Um, and, and they admitted like, like they built everything they could ever dream of in, in, into that space. So, um, but we are doing some information gathering just to look at all our options. Uh, I, I guess I would say that uh, it, I, I champion that. I think it's a good idea. I don't know if this is the right time uh, or for us to take on that uh, challenge and, and go that big, right? Um, so, uh, you know, that's that challenges us from a capital standpoint. It challenges us from attracting a vendor. Um, you know, grocery stores are hard to run. Uh, one thing I would say is that as a nonprofit owning the building, we would be in a position to offer the space at an extremely reduced rate. Like our, our pro forma doesn't even have rent revenue from the commercial space. So we're not even looking at any revenue from the commercial space at all. So in some sense, if we could tax wise or whatever, we would offer that space for free. Um, so we want, we just look for housing and the employment opportunities for our clients. That's really our interest. Uh, but I guess that's a long uh, winded way of saying we, we would like, you know, we're at a point which we need a site and we need a partner who's willing to say, okay, here's a site and we'll work with you on it. And we're not quite there yet with the city. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Ron. Um, Matthew, just a quick question, or really maybe just an idea that if you think it has any merit, you can follow up on it. Um, Tony Kresnick, the developer that's done a lot of work, East Knight Arts District, he's got a contract right now from the folks that own the open ground and some of the surrounding buildings just north across the street from the county courthouse. And I think they've given him like a couple of years to go find out if he can get anything <laughs> approved by the planning commission and the city commissioners to um, put, uh, make use of that that uh, land and some of those old older buildings and and his first project uh was a uh, kind of out of the box that he's working on now and still has some issues with the planning commission is is uh, uh, a low-income housing residential facility um but whether that goes or not there's still quite a bit of other space that um, he has some kind of dream of, of uh, using there across the street from the courthouse. Have, have you thought about having a conversation with him? Or if you haven't, he seems to me to be a very creative guy and, and has an eye for, um, he, he doesn't let convention hold him up. You know, if there's a new or a different way to do something that produces a result he likes, um, you know, he might try that. It, that's the only other space I can think of that's of any good size downtown that doesn't already have somebody, you know, other than the city controlling the future. 
Yeah, you know, I've talked with Tony in the past. I, I definitely will reach out to him and uh, I'm all, you know, I'm whatever idea that comes up, I'm willing to pursue. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. Thank you. I'll reach out and just have a conversation that never hurts. Uh, I, I guess I would say there is another spot that the city owns. It's over by um, the riverfront. Um, it, it's kind of right off. Oh, what is that? Is that New, New Jersey? Um, kind of New Jersey ends there. Um, I think their plan is to use that for staging of uh, construction materials and, and equipment when the World Company site starts to get developed. So they're a little reluctant to devote it for, for this type of purpose as well. But that is also another site we, we looked at. This is uh, <clears throat> Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commissioner. Matthew, thank you for that. Um, you talked to me, talk to us a little bit about um, conversations you've had with other community partners around this. I mean, I, I heard you talk about, it sounds like Burnash is trying to be as, I think you said, self-sustained um, as possible in the project and be the developer um, and owner of the site and provider of services. Um, but I'm just, can you help us understand how you kind of arrived to that particular place and whether or not there are still some partnerships in place or conversations that have happened with other housing um, services and developers like folks that are here with us, tenants to homeowners yeah. um, with their yeah. development experience in particular? Yeah, uh, there's a few uh, driving forces for us to have reached that conclusion. One is uh, as a supportive services for the target population. You know, we are, this will, this specific project will be for mental health clients who are Burton Ash consumers, you know, Medicaid recipients. Um, and, you know, understanding the challenges that other providers uh, have and, and, and being the self-supportive service provider, you know, we want to, we want to be, we are the supportive service provider and we want to jump into and continue to jump further into that uh, the best we can. Um, the other driving factor of this is the sustainability component. Um, by owning it, we benefit from not splitting up the revenue. So typically, when we provide supportive services, for example, in uh, partnership with a landlord who's receiving a, a housing voucher or with tenants to homeowners as the landlord, for example, that rent revenue gets, they take the rent, we take the Medicaid dollars. And, you know, for us to be sustainable, um, and again, we, our interest is not housing, generally speaking. Our interest is housing for Burton Ash clients um, for a very specific uh, uh, target population. So we're not we're not interested in supplanting anybody. Um, we, we're interested in serving our, our clients. Um, but so those are the two factors. It's this is the financial sustainability of the project really um, we, we need to be the owner so we can also uh, benefit from the revenue of rent that that rent would come to us as well as the Medicaid revenue. So we could have both of those revenue streams um, to net uh, a funding amount that we can then apply towards future housing development. Um, that's really the crux of this. And so we have talked about other other options. We talked with a group that was looking to develop a, uh, a new type of uh, land trust in downtown area. Actually, I asked if she had talked with you, Rebecca, um, the owners of Merchants um, was looking at developing a model to um, seed uh, business development, um, but a prohibitive uh, uh, 
component to that with us was that we want to own the building um, so we can we can collect the rent and um, wouldn't want to put it in trust like that. Uh, we're not quite there yet. Thanks, Matthew. That helps. And I, I guess I <clears throat> I forgot part of my question before I thought of was just wanting to know you did mention working with um, housing authority, right? And that the goal would be that uh, the Burt Nash clients that are there would be on vouchers or yes. be, would they already be on vouchers to enter the unit? Is that the goal? So it would not be that transitional. Yeah, the idea, the, the idea is that they would have a voucher um, Going to support. It. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> the way I've worded it is that they, they would qualify for a voucher. Um, okay. I guess we want to be flexible uh, as, uh, as flexible as we can with the client, but eventually they need to have a voucher, right? Like we might let them move in before they got their voucher, but they need to be on the list and ready to get a voucher. We're, 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 for this specific project, we were not ready to uh, quite, uh, our next project will be serving people who wouldn't necessarily qualify, but for this one, yes, they, they need to have a voucher at some point pretty soon after moving in. Gotcha, thank you. Shannon, I saw you um, unmute your vi or your video, so I don't know if you had anything to add to that. Yeah, and um, can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, and, and also, they could be on a transitional voucher while they wait for a regular voucher. I I wouldn't see any impediment with that. Um, and they could certainly be in and on our wait list. Um, so I don't because uh, our regular wait list, ha there's no requirement that they be homeless only. Our city home has really that requirement. Got it, okay. Thanks, John. Monty, so good to Matthew, how big a site do you think you need for this? I mean, what size of site are you looking for? Just out of curiosity. Um, the very first site that we just used as a model was where uh, the DARE Center is. And I would say that's probably about as small as we could get. Um, if, uh, and if there's a lot of things driving that, for example, parking, um, in order to be able to incorporate the required parking, we couldn't get really any lower than that. Um, and, as, and retain enough space to have a commercial space on that footprint. Um, in that design, we we had the building overhang parking, so there was actually parking kind of under the building, um, with the building on piers and on half of the site, and then the other half was a commercial space. But I would say that's probably about the smallest we would uh, want to go. And uh, this is Shannon Allery with the Housing Authority. One one other thing I'd like to add is, it is very difficult for us. To to, to swap places with Matthew, because generally speaking, except for a few exceptions, we are not able to pay ourselves via our vouchers. So it really helps, and, and we don't provide the services um, for this population. And so it is actually very helpful for us. Uh, I mean, we would fully support this project because it is very difficult group of folks to house and we really have some impediments to being able to be that partner.
This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. I, it, Matthew, I actually had a question for you. I was looking at the Corporation for Supported Housing Needs Assessment Draft, and they noted that um, there is an estimated need of 381 total units needed for supporting housing and um, that 76 of those units are currently in the capital acquisition pipeline. I'm wondering if this project was included in that 76 number that's in the pipeline or if this would help to serve an additional need. This, this project is or was in the acquisitions list, but I, it, that list was split up into several um, sections. I don't know what their number represents out of that list. There was, uh, for example, a, a kind of shovel ready list that was uh, a list of units that we thought we could realize in the next like year and 10 months. Um, and then there was a list of kind of longer term projects. This was in that longer term project list. Um, but again, I don't, I'm not recalling what the total number of, actually this, I think that 76 is probably just those shovel ready um, units because as I recall, the total amount of beds that we had in the acquisitions meeting on that list was was a lot more than 76. So um, I, I, I guess, no, this would not, insofar as that, um, the number in the pipeline, that I, I, I believe that's just those shovel ready projects. This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Thank you so much, Matthew. Um, I wanted to also remind the AHAB that uh, D Diane Stoddard had presented a list of city-owned properties that could potentially be used for affordable housing development at one of our 2021 meetings. And if any of the AHAB members are interested in reviewing that list, or you know, certainly if members know of additional sites that might be used for this project, that just a location continues to you know serve as a barrier for meeting the afforded affordable housing uh, projects that we need for our community. So your assistance would really be valuable in helping to get this important project. This is Chair. Can I go one more question? Sorry. Yeah. yeah sure. <laughs> um, Douglas County Commission. Um, I I think you said it, Matthew. So I'm sorry to make you repeat it. I just missed it in notes. Um, about how many staff are you planning for? I caught on to the case management piece and that on-site case management, but 2020 to 25 units, are we assuming, is that gonna be targeted towards individuals? Yeah, this, families? We, this project is one bedroom individuals. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, thank now, you. They would be receiving the full portfolio of Burnash services um, in respect to therapy and medication and peer support, et cetera, et cetera. But the site would have um, a dedicated staff, uh, at least one case manager. Okay. Any other dedicated staff like associated with property management being like landlord? What, what yeah, kind of infrastructure um, is that we, like? Yeah, as we grow and, and we've kind of, um, we've moved into another site at the Medical Arts Building to uh, because we ran out of space in the main building for our offices. And so we are hiring a, a facilities manager and that facilities manager would also be responsible. He would be, is gonna be responsible for kind of all of our facilities um, just as a kind of a higher level position to help coordinate 
work orders, um, you know, tornado and fire drills, OSHA stuff, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, there will be a, a dedicated property manager that will that oversees all our property. Actually, we'll probably bring that person on board within the next six months. Okay. Okay. I'm done, Chair. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Shannon. Good questions. Uh, I'm going to close this unless somebody has a burning question. And thank you, Matthew. Uh, that's an exciting project. And uh, I hope some of our uh, people will kind of keep their eyes and ears open for sites that might become available or things to make inquiries about. Because uh, it's a great project. Thank you all for the opportunity. It's good to see you all. All right. Thank you. All right. We will move on to our second item uh, that's to receive a presentation from tenants to homeowners on the role of the community land trust and community housing development organization and affordable housing development and preservation that was a mouthful um who do we have from tenants to homeowners that's going to make that presentation i have nicholas here from my staff nicholas you want to come on, but I am going to help with that as well. Um, since this is just an education piece, no funding request. Um, and I sent Leah, Leah, do you want to just start off with the little tiny video, which is those infographic videos are so helpful, right? And just kind of what in the world is a community land trust? And we all, there's like 20 different acronyms for all these things I know. And um, so talking about what a land trust is, um, there's a cute little video. Now it does talk about New York City, but what's exciting to me is that it's from Habitat Organization in New York. So they are on board too of how do we, all the partners, how do we put things, how do we make them permanently affordable? That's really the issue. All of our work for all these projects, how do we ensure that they stay affordable over time in a market like ours? Um, and so that's really what the community land trust tool is. And I, it's not about tenants to homeowners. It's about a community organization and community run ownership of land to make sure that any type of housing we're talking about is kind of set aside for permanent affordability. Leah, can you show that, share that video? This is Leah Rosalind, Affordable Housing Administrator. I was actually just chatting with Nicholas to see if he might be able to share it because the video is not, uh, it says YouTube is not currently available on this device in City Hall. Oh, so for some okay. reason, I'm not able to share it here. Nicholas, who are, would you be able to do that? Yeah, while you pull that up, I can share or talk about a few things. Um, there are trusts right now, we have 95 homes in trust, and the nice thing is they're scattered sites, right? So you, they're all over Lawrence. Now, um, we definitely have more on the east side than the west side of town, but we're trying to change that and do some development. Um, and I think what we've been talking a lot about lately is like, how can this tool be used in partnership and collaboration with for-profit developers or Matthew at Burt Nash or any number of other agencies that, you know, have specific clients they're trying to serve with affordable housing. And, you know, it's that simple that we can develop housing as a turnkey 
um, and actually Burt Nash can continue to own it just as an example so you guys can wrap your head around you know like we actually bring to the table just being able to develop housing for 30 years TTH will be in its 30 year anniversary this year so um, we have had the experience of actually developing my biggest project was not a big multifamily project so then we talked to Tony which we were partners in on Nidell Lofts so I have been partners in some bigger multifamily but um we've done 18 unit single family um cul-de-sac and development that went through all of the planning um any number of 11 eight units 12 you know so little neighborhoods of single family and multifamily housing uh we have triplexes we have fourplexes we have kind of duplexes the whole spectrum of trying to push towards a little more density um, and so what really happens is those 95 homes are initially subsidized for home ownership in particular are subsidized at a certain level and then the families that buy them cannot sell them for market value we retain and steward that value in trust so what's so exciting is that when we put those 95 homes in originally the average subsidy for each of those was about $43,000. Um, of course, some are more, some are less over since 2005, we've been adding homes to trust. Um, but essentially initial subsidy was about $4 million. If we look at what those houses based on their formula affordable price would sell to the next buyer in this moment, it's worth about 8 million in affordability. So we've taken 4 million in subsidy and actually appreciated to $8 million in affordable housing to the, the next and future families that live in these houses. And we've created a permanent stock of entry-level affordable housing. Um, and then 91% of our homeowners move on to the unrestricted market. So that's pretty excited too, that a lot of folks that would rent for years and years and years and never build any wealth can actually move on to the unrestricted market and build wealth with us, but then build more wealth after they move on and have no restrictions, but they let the next person build some wealth to move on to the unrestricted market. Now tenants to homeowners doesn't just do home ownership, we also do rental and so we have 122 rentals that do a lot of the supportive services, senior housing, other rental housing that people need other support services to stay housed and those can be in trust too but as Matthew described you just need to own the building to control the rents and to manage those um, correctly. So the idea of, of being in trust is more unique when we talk about a home ownership units being in trust. Okay, Leo, whenever you can, let's do a little CLT 101. Thank you. Uh, this is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Is everybody able to see the video? Excellent. Building homes for their families is filled with hardworking people from around the world 
building homes for their families and a future for their communities. Yet this culturally, socially, and economically diverse metropolis is at risk of becoming the nation's largest gated, or perhaps moated, community. As home prices and rents skyrocket, home ownership is moving further and further out of reach for local families, unable to Leah, you can't hear it. Many of these affordable homes disappear and overcrowded. This is Leah Rosal, affordable housing administrator. I apologize. Um, I'm not sure why the audio isn't coming through, but I'll leave my mic unmuted and hopefully um, that will be loud enough for folks to hear. I'll start it over again building homes for their families and a future for their communities. Yet this culturally, socially, and economically diverse metropolis is at risk of becoming the nation's largest gated, or perhaps moated, community. As home prices and rents skyrocket, home ownership is moving further and further out of reach for local families. Unable to afford a down payment, these would-be home buyers remain renters, often in overcrowded, unaffordable, and unhealthy conditions, putting further strain on the housing market. How did we get here? One reason is that while hundreds of thousands of affordable housing units have been built in recent decades, many of these affordable homes disappear, becoming market rate housing with sales and rental restrictions timing out way too quickly. This results in more longtime residents being displaced and pushed away from their communities. So what can we do? The community land trust model is one way we can build homes that last. With the community land trust, or CLT, affordable housing is rooted permanently in the land itself. The CLT is a community controlled nonprofit that owns the land and sells or rents the housing on that land to low income New Yorkers. Home buyers sign a 99 year lease with the condition that when they sell their home, it will be sold at an affordable price for the next low income buyer. The homeowner builds equity while the property remains affordable for another buyer of limited means. This creates a permanently affordable housing marketplace for generations to come, shielding the homes and community from speculators and preventing gentrification. Join us in building homes and communities that last. Advocate for permanently affordable homeownership by calling, visiting, writing, or tweeting at your local and state representatives. Thank you, Leah. After, you know, six months of doing this, she's seen. Um, I, that, that's exciting to me because a lot of places around the country also community land trusts work with Habitat, like Erica and I have worked with, where Habitat builds the home and puts it in trust. So that's a great example of a collaboration where we make sure all the work that Habitat does in our community is permanently affordable. Um, and, and that's a great example of where, yeah, any number of our agencies can work together um, to make that a possibility. So there's just so many options or a, a developer, you know, can work with us for incentives that the city comes up with that they then give us a lot or two and we develop housing on it and put it in trust or they develop the housing on it and we buy it at a reduced price. I mean, there's 
a hundred different ways that collaborative developers, partners, agencies can get involved in owning the housing, building the housing, buying the housing. And then we put it in trust so that we know one, the house is not going to be sold appreciated to someone that's mission is outside of affordable housing. And two, that we then actually pass that appreciation on to the next buyer or the next purpose for that housing, even if it's within the an agency that if Burt Nash owns something as it appreciates, they can then sometimes put that value back into their programs or services in those units. So to me, that's, you know, of course, any of us think, oh, that's just a nonprofit owner, developer, you know, managing affordable rental property. Yes, it is. But there's a lot of ways we can collaborate with that and make sure that all of our units that are affordable do not go away in 10, 15, 30 years. Um, and I know there's a good argument that sometimes a 30 year multifamily affordable building needs to be updated at 30 years. And so it's not, but there's still a lot of of value and appreciation that affordable housing developers could earn if we put that initial subsidy, if we lock it in trust for um, nonprofit, you know, housing development, whether it's nonprofit or not, but that it's locked in for the community to use any appreciation for a later project or a rehabilitation of those units. Um, at the 30 year mark. So again, the low income housing tax credits, which is what many of us are used to in bigger metro areas, they just get sold on the regular market in 30 years. So they do go away at some point. Um, and that's why for-profit developers like them because they will, in Lawrence, they will make a lot of money in 30 years when that is, is uh goes on can be sold to the market um and so that's just again this is a mechanism for our community to understand why how we lock our subsidy dollars in when we develop things for affordable housing it's just a really long-term look and again tennis domers loves to partner with anybody we don't have to own it if we're putting things in trust through other mechanisms and other agencies own it, I am fine with that. I just want it to be locked into permanent affordability. That's all we care about. And we're happy to help create that model that allows for that with anybody. Shannon is, we're working together. She has some lots. The housing authority has to own their units. We're looking at potentially just building some of them for her as a subcontractor. So again, bringing our development experience to that, and then she'll own and manage those units. So that's another example of a different way to get more units. Um, I'm just trying to think of all the ideas we've all had about, about, you know, different partnerships and ways that we, the important thing is that, you know, I will work on that project and, and build that because I know it'll be locked in to Shannon's afford, you know, to the housing authorities, affordable housing trust, essentially. So I guess that's, it, it's not even about the trust so much, but that is a nice model for when we, if we're asking for developers to participate, that somehow we put that in where it can't be lost to the unaffordable market. Um, 
But I think there's a lot of, you know, and then the other thing, just as Matthew was talking about, we all have different populations that we serve and we all are trying to serve supportive service housing more. And tenants to homeowners has 122 units where we're trying to do that. And we're looking at trying to build units in trust that we then collaborate with Willow, the DV center or uh, the shelter and the foster care units where we're providing rental management and they're providing services. And so that's another example of a collaborative approach that can work really well. for rental housing. And again, how do we meet the need of those um, 398 units uh, or 300 something, right, in supportive service housing units that were recently, um, we, we got a number, which was nice to kind of know, or but the need is great. And as we know, we're not gonna be able to build 390 units in a year. Um, So again, looking at the next five-year plan of how many units can we build and we need all of us to do, to increase the supply. So it's just a matter of, but as a community, how do we make sure those will stay permanently affordable? Um, And I do want to share, Nicholas, can you share the, or you sent it to Leah, but you don't have it on your computer. Can you just pull up the screen on the West Side Project? which I think you guys would would like to see too on just this idea of a little bigger scale project, which we of course will work with other developers. So we're not, we've talked to, uh, Matthew talked about Sunflower developers and they do a lot of really great projects um, for multifamily. Uh, well, and this is the project that, um, we're looking at for Castle on the Curve, if we can acquire that. Uh, But this is the west side development. So again, commercial space on the top, that yellow building is commercial. Um, Because this is right across from Casey's there on Bob Billings, so that is absolutely a commercial node that the city was interested in. Um, And then looking at, you know, townhomes and row houses a little more than we've ever done here in Lawrence um, to get a little more density. So this is 122 units, but the duplexes over here on the right side um, are actually ownership units. So again, an attempt to have a mixture of a little bit higher end home ownership units with more affordable rental units. And some of these rental units could be supportive service housing tucked in, you know, four or five of them, um, so that you have uh, a variety of people you're serving within the affordable housing spectrum. Um, But as we all know, we need the supply no matter what target it serves. Um, But again, this is where we can get some this is west side development of affordable housing and i will we will all need your everyone's support that we need this um when there's some nimbyism that ultimately will come up so um i'm just gonna let anyone that has any questions um go for it i'm done all right Thomas Howe, uh, Lawrence Board of Realtors Representative. I, I wanted to comment as opposed to ask questions. Rebecca, if you will remember, I was chair of the 
board, board for tenants to homeowners when we put L, uh, the Lawrence Community Housing Trust into place. Very proud of how it has worked. You guys have done an awesome job with it. Uh, recently, I saw an example of how it should work, but the house that we looked at was done prior to the Community Housing Trust. And I think you know that way back in the day, 1033 New York was one which, I'm sorry, 1133 New York was one which the buyer purchased with tenants to homeowners for $50,000. And then it went to the open market and sold for $150,000. There is currently another one, which was an 804 project. And it is now on the market at $330,000. I think that what the Community Housing Trust is doing is really commendable and uh, uh, it works well. So thanks for your work on that. Thanks for making sure that it's it, it continues on. I think it's a great program. Uh, if you need anybody to talk to outside of your office, I'm happy to, to visit and, and chat about that because I think it's a great program. Thanks, Thomas. Yeah, to your point, um, right now the average price was in the high 200s, right? 290 or something for 21. And, uh, and of course they're all different, but somewhere in there and our average sale price over the last 15 years we've done this is actually uh, 121. So again, when you look at what those, when they come up for resale, those houses sell for 121 and the current average is closer to 300,000. So again, that, that money were, think if we had to resubsidize all of those every time we wouldn't have any left because we don't have that kind of funding. Um, even with ARPA, as exciting as it is, that would take all of ARPA just to have another 100 units, but we have those 95 units and every time we add another one for 30 to 50,000, we will, it will gain um, in value. So again, it's just a really efficient way to do um, housing as particularly ownership housing which i know is is not the whole spectrum of housing by any means but it's a huge component because those are the folks that can move on uh, out of subsidy and allows for more rental housing that's affordable for those that need that um and when we know a lot of families that they just don't have fifteen thousand down right and i should say that's part of our program is they have put five percent of their annual gross down and we cover closing costs so we use a little subsidy to make it really affordable to get in so normally people have five thousand in closing costs and need ten thousand 10 to twenty thousand down right to avoid private mortgage insurance or even FHA requires three to 5% down of the housing cost. So most we average entry level housing, you need 12 to 15,000 out of pocket. And that's where a lot of our families that can make the payment because they rent for that much. In fact, a lot of times their house payment goes down from their rental payment. Um, so yeah, being able to serve that, those families to then open up other rental housing also to serve the families that really rental housing is, is what they need. They need that support from a good landlord and, and a good rental housing, which I know doesn't always happen either. But if we imagine that permanent stock of affordable housing with good management, um, that's the dream, right? Uh, this is Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commission. Um, 
Rebecca, I'm, I wrote down 122 rentals. That's what I think I heard you say earlier. Is that um, the rentals that you own or is that rentals you own plus the one? Okay, so in addition to the 122 that you own, you are also now managing for other property owners, right? It, yes, yes. And I'm sorry, Shannon, that number was at the end of 21 and we actually added 15 more since then in management and about 24 of those are not owned by us. So okay. we have about 100 owned by us and right now 30 some are in process, you know, 24 are being managed. Those are senior units in Baldwin and we're continuing to add yeah, have kind of 20 in the pipeline right now for management from other landlords that would al allow us. And part of that was trust fund money, remember, to mm -hmm. be able to fix some units up and then rent them out at a lower rent for the next five years. And we're hoping to acquire some of those too. Like That's what I was kind of going towards, was wondering if any of those felt like that relationship was going to lead to having more that became permanently part of your portfolio of ones that you own. So that's great to hear. And then I also wondered, like, in that number, uh, it sounds like you've got some under um, that are in process. Is it kind of a, a whole spectrum of, of landlords or property owners? Um, in terms of folks that maybe own multiple properties, or and maybe some like you mentioned the senior um, units and and that's like a clustered kind of site. Yeah, that's a low income housing right? tax credit project that okay. we manage. Um, and, and there are partners with Tony's tax credit project and other tax credit projects in this community. Uh, we just haven't taken on the man, you know, a lot of times they'll hire out other management. And we'll probably do the same for that West Side development. I mean, at some point you need yeah. more staff, right? Sure. Um, so, <laughs> but I will say again, just having that in the affordable housing management world where we have kind of trauma-informed counselors and case managers that are part of that management team um, and looking at supportive service housing management for re affordable rentals is, you know, there's there's an overlap there of you kind of need a counselor and a rental manager or somewhere in between. Um, and I think that's where, you know, agencies working with other for-profit landlords or uh, Shannon and uh, Matthew at Burt Nash and Dana and all of us working together collaboratively can really bring projects that really serve people beyond just putting a roof over their head. I mean, that's the challenging part. And I always think of it as if, I, if they have tenants to homeowners uh, staff and they have housing authorities, resident services, and they have Dana with Family Promise, you know, we're, we're much more likely to have that safety net for folks that, that really are the hardest to house. Yeah. Um, and and I'm I you I love your idea. Our goal would be to acquire any of those units over time that we can. Um, yeah, that I mean, it just seems like it's a very uh, <clears throat> mutually beneficial arrangement. I mean, like it can check a lot of boxes for a lot of different people if that's how it works out with some of those units. So that like it's a efficient way for you all to acquire more property over time and to 
contain it. So that's awesome. My last question is, you didn't talk about this. It's just kind of something that's been bumping around in my head and I don't really know if there are models specific to it or I was thinking about like rent to own opportunities. So, I mean, because of the, the work that you all are doing across that spectrum, I imagine that lots of folks you might be supporting in rentals eventually ideally might move into, you know, their first home purchases as tenants to homeowners. So there's that kind of pipeline, if you will, but also thinking about the problem, like the issue of lots of people who have lived in their rentals for years and years and years have been long-term tenants and have just never had the equity or, or, or the access to lending or knowledge or any of that to purchase. Um, and then they're suddenly facing not having their home and having to enter the market now, which is much more expensive. Uh, you know, like I've heard tons right. of stories in my job of landlords maintaining steady, low enough, affordable rental amounts, and eventually they want to sell or they pass and their family wants to sell. So I've just been thinking about ways to, I guess, educate or think through how to help people access that. Like if they're, they've already invested money in renting in a unit and maybe could yeah. become an owner of that unit. I'm just curious if you guys have ever navigated that with folks or if you have any ideas about models for that. We've done all of that to a limited degree. I think the biggest problem is usually when you get funding for a project, it's either for ownership or rental. So it's hard to let someone who's been using the rental suddenly move it to ownership. In fact, HUD makes that really hard. So federal funds don't work that well. That doesn't mean informally a lot of our tenants that were like, hey, you're doing great. You've gotten several raises. We know that because we do annual income eligibility and it's like so we have moved a lot of tenants that are like that into the home ownership program and I think we'll continue to try to work with people to get them to that um, but I there's also yeah you could have units that don't have any federal strings attached anymore that we have we've always been willing to look at should we sell that and we have done a few of those where it was a subsidized rental unit in the compliance period was 10 years and then we had someone in there or with someone who wanted to buy it um, and we put it in a home ownership that way now your idea of like those people that are in these rental units and they've been in there forever and their rent hasn't gone up right they've kind of got the grandfathered in cheap rent which is great and then their their units want to be sold or their landlord wants to sell and we just found nicholas and i just looked at two little houses on a lot it's actually density it's what <laughs> everyone was not in love with our first idea it was like those were built in the 70s those grandmother houses right there's two little houses on one lot um on florida street and they are selling it's two two bedroom houses with one bathroom for two hundred fifty five thousand, and we were like we'll buy that and split them up, keep, you know, we own the lot because the land trust can do that and then sell those two units. But then when we met, when we looked at the units and they're really cute, uh, the people that were in there were just like that. They both work from home and they have their whole office set up and they've been there for years. And so Nicholas and I looked at each other and we're like, well, when we buy these, we'll get, see if they can 
if they can buy them in trust first, right? Give them first dibs. And, you know, maybe they can't get a home loan or, but that idea of, can we make, can we kind of come in and help a renter buy their home? Um, and I think that's an expanding program and project where we're looking at because of that situation right now. Cool. Okay, thanks for sharing those examples. Um, I was gonna chime in real quick if that's okay. And um, I know that the conversation has come up just with questions about exactly how the land trust works and what those partnerships can be, the community conversations that have been happening about how do we get more for-profit developers in on the conversation, especially with annexation and talking about are there potential incentives that developers could have that would help them um, place some units into permanent affordability and what would those look like? And so Rebecca and I have been working on, and I've also been talking to Leah about uh, developing what would essentially be, uh, we've, we've dubbed it at Tenants to Homeowners, the affordable kitchen, um, but it's a menu of affordable housing options ways in which you can bring housing or land into permanent affordability through the trust. And so it breaks down with a, you know, kind of a cute title for each way that you can do it. And then a full paragraph explanation later on of what it takes in terms of subsidy partnerships, how all of that works, what each of those, I think right now it's like eight or nine options are um, for how this can be done. And then with the idea that it'll also be a living document so that as policy changes, because we know some of our um, zoning policies and all that will shift in two years. Um, how do we do this? And it's also meant to be a tool. So we'll run it by some for-profit developers so that it's easily understood how they can partner in this way to help bring um, affordable housing in. And then I know there's conversations at the city level um, to start talking about what would um, potential incentives be that could be offered if that is a community benefit that's desired to give more affordability. And so those things are happening in the background right now. I know we haven't talked about those a lot publicly, but within the next month or so, we'll have that menu to present to Ahab. Um, but first we're gonna go back and forth and talk with the city to make sure that tenants to homeowners phrasing and objectives that we're putting forth are meeting up with what the city plans to be doing in the future. Yeah, go ahead, Ron. I think we're ready to kind of pretty soon wrap this up, though, so we can get on the next item. I've, I've got I've got a, a quick comment and a quick question for Rebecca. Uh, the quick comment is this: I strongly support the push towards creating as much permanent affordable housing as possible. And if if you know if it's appropriate uh in our scoring matrix or otherwise in our evaluation of competing projects i think we should always be trying to reward the permanently affordable uh project whether it's through giving it additional money per unit or moving it up on the priority list or whatever the case might be but we also and, and this is my butt but we also have to deal with the other programs where they are and I'm speaking specifically of the federal low income uh, tax credit, low income housing tax credit program, which only puts projects into uh, required affordability for typically 30 years is what we see. You know, we, we had folks that wanted to vote no on the Penn Street loss project because it wasn't permanently affordable. 
And I think we would have made a big mistake not to have provided financial support to that project. And, you know, as it turns out, we even badgered uh, Tony into what? Giving us one or two units he agreed to make permanently affordable at the end of the 30-year run. Um, I, uh, I, I, hear, I hear what you're saying about it, you know, the developers all get rich at 30 years, but I really don't think folks are putting projects together right now and putting their capital at risk right now for what they hope will be a payout for a good building 30 years from now. Most of those folks are, you know, by the time 30 years rolls around, they sold that property to somebody else. And, you know, it, it, it's someone down market that receives whatever benefit is uh, 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 occurs from it going into uh, the fair market uh, price market. But, but your point is important and I'm fully supportive. We want permanent affordability and whatever we can do to direct facilities into the trust fund, we should be looking to do because we really lock them down that way. And I thought your example of how much more appreciation that we've received in the out years than what you originally put in was a great illustration of how important that permanent affordability is. So I wanna thank you for putting emphasis on that. Thanks, Ron. And I and I agree. We have to we have to use tax credits, right? There's yeah. the only way we can get supply. But let's keep pushing and thinking. I mean, Tony agreed to work with some of us to make some of those units permanently affordable. Hey, that's a win. You bet. And, and then my quick question is: Do you have any interest in the Econo Lodge project? My pipeline right now, no. But we'll. I mean, we'll keep. We'll at, we'll talk to them. I mean, yeah, that's a really interesting project. I think, again, in effort to not create concentrations of of poverty, I think that would be a challenge. You'd have to really design some mixed unit stuff out of that. Okay. Um, you know, and that or or have a lot of funding to really have the five or six staff that would always, you know, be there for supportive service. So we're really focused on building, you know, four or five units together. And I think there's a an element of wisdom in starting with that at our size of community. Mm -hmm. Not to say we don't need 300 units, but not all together. Um, and and okay. Econo Lodge seems like a concentration that might be a little more than we can bite off at this moment, because a lot of our supportive services are really starting to figure out how to collaborate together. And I think we can get there where a project like that would make sense. Tom's been waiting patiently. <laughs> Let Tom jump in here, thanks. Thank you, Tom Allen, member at large. Um, one local trust I like is Trust Neighborhoods. They're out of Kansas City. And they do a really good job looking at mixed income um, environments. and. Uh, if you haven't looked at them, I would encourage you to do so. I don't know that it would fit your model, but I think it's something that we could think about as a group where they actually look at, at market rate rentals that they use to sort of fund some of their other projects. But just as we talk about how we struggle to get in certain um, more privileged neighborhoods, maybe maybe an approach could be is that we actually take a, a higher end home, purchase it at market rate, pull it into the trust portfolio, and then 
you know, once we're more established or five or 10 years from then, then we could actually start to rethink what we'd want to do with that market rate rental. So um, I really appreciate what you're doing and I, I really get excited about uh, these sort of trusts. So thank you. I love that idea, Tom. And you're right. Again, that constant, we need all this supply of really affordable units, but we also don't want to create a concentration of poverty. And of course, it does. it's this ridiculous balance, right? But you're right that mixed income development addresses that balance probably best because then you're also serving some other popular, you know, some higher incomes. And we are looking potentially at the West side. Again, a lot of funding sources won't let you go over certain incomes. So you've got to then have different leverage sources, but to maybe get, uh, you know, go up to 100% median income or 120 in some of these developments so that we have a nice mixture. And so we're looking at that in, in the bigger developments um, we just showed you. Um, so yeah, great idea. I'm gonna bring this to a close. We got a couple other things to get to on the agenda unless somebody has something super burning that they can't wait. All right, thank you, Rebecca. Thank you guys. And Nick, whatever, Nick, oh, there's Nick. Thank you, Nick, as well. All right, uh, so we're gonna move on to item number three, which is affordable housing advisory board meeting format discussion. So basically what that is, is I believe next uh, month, we could meet in person uh, like we had in the past. Um, and we'd like to open that up and I guess open that up for discussion. Uh, we would still be a hybrid situation so that if you were out of town or you chose not to come, you could still participate via Zoom. So we'd have a hybrid meeting, but uh, we can certainly meet in a room and conduct our business. So um, I guess I'm gonna recommend that we, we move forward meeting in person and with hybrid if you choose to come hybrid unless there's an objection to that or somebody has other comments, I'm certainly willing to listen. Yeah, Shannon. I support that. This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. I did want to note that the city commission room will not accommodate all members to participate in um, in person at this time because we still do need to offer the hybrid meeting and the Zoom technology. And so um, any members present will need a mic and some kind of tablet or laptop. Um, but there may be a possibility if everybody's interested in meeting, as per in meeting in person, meeting in person in an alternate location, maybe in the planning uh, department conference room, for example. All right, is there any objection to moving forward with trying to meet in person or? Uh, Mr. Chair, this is Sarah Waters with KU. I, I don't have an objection to that, but I do find it, I find it really challenging when the majority of people end up in a space. Um, there's still a couple that are hybrid or remote because I've had to do that in my current employer, with my current employer. So again, I understand for safety or for out of town issues, maybe people still feel they need to be virtual. But I, again, I, I also just heard Leah say that we have to bring a laptop anyway. So is it because we're going to be on our own Zoom screen in a room with others? So 
I'm almost advocating here that we don't have a virtual component, which may be city policy. Um, I don't know, but I'm just I'm just trying to understand why we have to be hybrid and we can't just come back in person. I understand COVID's still going, but maybe a little more clarification. This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. At this time, city policy is that we still need to offer a virtual format for those who are not able to participate in person for safety concerns. So, so because also May is the retreat, maybe understanding format there too. I just, I think it'll be very challenging to do retreat if we're gonna do what we have typically done with pieces of paper and post-its and walk around a room and have folks still virtual. Um, but Monty, to your question, I would support that next meeting that we're mostly in space for those that feel comfortable doing it. Mr. Chairman, yeah, go ahead, Ron. Um, I'm one of those that if we if we had not had the opportunity to meet remotely, uh, I wouldn't have been able to participate with you at all this past year because of health issues that I've had. So um, I've also, like Sarah, participated in a lot of Zoom meetings the last um, <laughs> 18 months, 24 months. And, and the last few months, a bunch of them have been hybrids. And, and they're not any fun, those hybrid meetings. But I think it's important to maintain that option for the still declining but significant number of folks who feel they're at risk um, of their health and want that option in order to still participate. Um, I, I don't think we're yet to the point where that person should be considered eccentric or an outlier. Um, and, um, and I think, I think I'm, I'm willing to uh, tolerate a few more awkward hybrid meetings the next couple of months if we need to. Uh, and I plan, I plan to show up live anytime we've got the opportunity to do that because my worst health concerns are now behind me. Um, but knowing that I was in that situation this past year, if there was somebody that was still in that situation, I wouldn't want them to be precluded from participating on AHAB or in the planning meeting because we haven't made that available to them. Thank you, Ron. So is my understanding the city policy is it will be offered if we choose to go in person regardless. So my question there is, I guess we need to, or a comment is we need to figure out where we're gonna meet, plan on meeting in person, uh, have that capability. I, 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 I don't know, I don't know, maybe I speak for myself, but I don't think it's a super acceptable response that somebody would have to bring a laptop because somebody may not have a laptop to bring to a meeting and that would preclude somebody from coming in person. So I hope the city will come up with a better solution than, than that kind of situation. Mr. Chair, this is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. I, I apologize, let me clarify. A laptop needs to be provided to that individual. Um, they don't have to provide their own. We just have to have a workstation for everybody participating so that everybody can have audio and visual to participate via Zoom for community members interested in participating that way. Okay, all right. Thank you for the clarification. I think we should try that. In my opinion, we should try that in May at our regular meeting, and then 
uh, obviously that'll be uh, uh, then maybe we'll have at least one under our belt before we do the retreat in case someone needs to participate remotely. Yeah. This read, uh, quick question and a comment. Um, <clears throat> what's the maximum number of people that the city commission chambers can accommodate, Leah? Yes. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. My understanding it's 11 on the dais. Um, it, we could configure the tables um, similar to how they were set up last time uh, before we went virtual, but we are losing, I know you can't see where I'm pointing, we're losing sort of the front of the room for the um, AV equipment. And so we can't go back to the original configuration. So I believe it's about the same number, 10 or 11 can fit around the tables as well. Well, that's more than I was thinking, and I try. I don't have a, a full list of everybody in front of me. I know we're at we're fewer than ten, but we're missing some folks. I just well, don't remember what our total number is. Yeah, we're twelve members plus twelve okay. staff right now. We are missing one seat. Got it. And then I guess my comment is, I mean, based on folks RSVPs or preferences, it seems like it would determine the location and whether you needed to come up with an alternative location. Uh, obviously, I have not been present for a retreat. Well, I don't recall that we did much of a retreat last year, um, <laughs> if, if at all. But um, I, Sarah, I heard your comments about like at previous retreats, kind of walking around with sticky notes and have probably using the physical space of walls and whiteboards and stuff, I, I assume have been a thing. So perhaps city staff can work on a plan for accommodating that virtually, specifically for the sake of what the um, I'm I'm most concerned with it being a fully public process and for those conversations to be viewable, but also like logistically possible for all of us to participate in. And there's some awkwardness around that with hybrid, but if we can have like a live screen where that kind of note taking and, and visually doing that, it feels like that's an important accommodation to figure out. Otherwise, I, I mean, I support i like the idea of coming back in person um but would like that accommodation for folks to watch later and really know everything we discussed yeah thank you shannon go ahead rebecca rebecca buford with tenants to homeowners it, it correct me leah is um the retreat is not public is it it hasn't been in the past this is Lee Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. I believe it is public. Since all board members will be present, um, as long as we have a quorum, it, it would need to be public. So then people can join us in the room, but that's now that public is hybrid, then we have to make sure if we're talking in the room that it's audio, video, I see. Yeah, it's become a little more complicated, huh? Mm -hmm. And it's the next meeting. Yes. Yeah. May meeting. Okay. I'm gonna. I don't think we have to vote on that or anything. Just know next time we're gonna plan on being in person, and uh, hopefully the city folks will come up with a good solution for us. And uh, in that process, I mean, they're doing this with every committee, so 
I'm confident they will come up with a good solution sometime. This is Leah Rosen, Affordable Housing Administrator, just to make sure I'm understanding. So the advisory board wishes to come back in person in terms of the AHAB members. Um, should I just count on then everybody being present in person for the May retreat so I can ensure that we have a physical location to accommodate that? I'm saying, okay, excellent. Thank you for that clarity. Okay. All right, so now we uh, next item on the agenda is to discuss the retreat. So you uh, receive a retreat kind of draft agenda. Um, so we kind of have just a few goals for the retreat. Uh, we're gonna spend just a little bit of time uh, reviewing our current goals and where we stand against those goals. We're not gonna spend a lot of time going over that, but certainly wanna know where we, where we stand. Um, we're gonna uh, we're gonna review you know the the uh, you know Horizon 2040 plan, some of the housing goals, some of the goals of the city, and those kind of things. Uh, Leah's putting that work together to kind of see what other uh, larger city and county groups have talked about as far as the housing and how they've referenced that uh, to help guide us on the preparation of a new set of goals. Uh, both short-term, well, basically short-term goals. Um, and I think one of the, uh, as we, as Lee and I and, and uh, Edith have talked through this a little bit, um, uh, thinking about what new goals look like. You know, last time we set goals with specific metrics on number of houses and number of units and whatever. Um, so think about whether we want to do something like that, or if you'd rather, uh, or if there are different uh, goals. You know, maybe there, uh, maybe we want, maybe we want to have a goal that impacts uh, the new planning process. You know, and impacts that, which obviously wouldn't have a unit, you know, a, a numbered uh, metric that we could track, but it would, but would be important. So. Want you to think about things like that. Anything that you want to see uh, after the last couple of years, knowing uh, how we'd want to move forward. Like Ron brought up the fact that maybe you know we want one of our metrics to be you know for emphasized permanent affordable housing. So just start read through this and start thinking about those things. Uh, so as we come to the meeting uh, in May for the retreat, that um, you got some. Uh, you know, some thoughts and some things to bring to that meeting. Uh, and then ultimately, once we have kind of set goals, we'll talk about strategies on uh, on how to reach those goals. Uh, so does anybody have any questions on that? Yeah, Ron, go ahead. Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative. Uh, Mr. Chairman, a couple of meetings ago, uh, I had raised some consideration of um, changing our development code to allow duplex by right. And uh, had asked if there was an opportunity for us to, you know, develop a recommendation to the planning commission um, uh, or to, excuse me, to the city commission to consider a modification of our planning code to allow uh, for duplex by right. Um, was it 
planned that that issue would return to the AHAB agenda at some time in the future? Uh, Ron is smarting, so the chair, I, um, that fell off of my radar, so I can't say that it has unless, uh, but we can certainly bring that up as a, uh, I would probably call that a strategy within some of our goals for changing, you know, working on the development uh, code. So certainly something we can include in our conversation uh, at the retreat. All right, thank you. This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Yeah, just to um, further comment on Ron's question, the intention on the 1245 item um, around strategies really is to discuss if there are policy strategies like that, what are the AHAP's priorities for the next two years? Um, and um, in addition to the um, trust fund awards. And so if there are examples like that, that the board wishes to explore further, um, we could come prepared um, with current code or what options might be, but that's exactly in alignment with the intent of that discussion. Are there other comments or questions on uh, what we have upcoming? Or did we miss anything that uh, somebody on the board wants to uh, talk about in the retreat? Okay. I'm going to call close that item and we'll move into staff updates. Uh, the financial report. Uh, this is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, item number one, the monthly financial report, the March sales tax revenue has not yet been updated, so I am unable to provide the March financial report at this time. I'll include the March financial report at the May 2022 meeting. There's no change on the expense side, and we do not anticipate changes in original revenue projections. We anticipate meeting budgeted revenue. Um, the second item is that yard signs have been printed and delivered to the recipients of the 2022 Affordable Housing Trust Funds. Um, that's been a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, we're doing a photo shoot of the recipients when the yard signs are dropped off and these will be used for a press release and other marketing about the trust funds. This is one step towards increasing community visibility about the outcomes and projects being developed with the sales tax and staff is continuing to explore and work on other avenues for marketing and community engagement. Um, last week, we were able to drop off the signs to tenants to homeowners and the Lawrence Douglas County Housing Authority and Independence Inc. And it was just such a pleasure to talk to the recipients and learn how meaningful the funds are towards um, individuals in our community being able to have safe and stable housing. Um, and then finally, I submitted the Affordable Housing Advisory Board Capital Improvement Plan application that requests for the city to set aside $500,000 in capital improvement funds to be used exclusively in support of affordable housing projects to be presented by the Affordable Housing Advisory Board no later than December 1 of 2022. The public hearing will take place on August 23rd with the bu budget adoption taking place on September 6th. You 
may view the timeline and the CIP materials once available online at um, laurensks.org slash budget slash CIP. Um, and then finally, I was just going to share my screen really quickly so that folks can see. Um, here is uh, the photo of Rebecca and Jeremy and Nicholas. And I apologize, Rebecca, I'm forgetting the other staff member's name um, in front of one of their developments at Beatnet Court with our sign. That's Dylan. <laughs> Dylan. So um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And hopefully folks will start to see the signs throughout the community. All right. Is that the end of the staff report? I have a question for Leah. Yeah. Uh, Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative. Leah, do we know, do the home builders have a nominee for their Ahab slot yet? This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Thank you for that question, Mr. Gacious. Um, the Home Builders Association did elect somebody, and then my understanding is that they withdrew um, that nominee. And uh, my understanding is that, that the mayor is awaiting um, their new nominee. Um, so, I, I did express um, that the AHAB, you know, really values that position and that we are looking forward to our new member from the Home Builders Association and it is in the works. Thank you. This is Monty Sotop Chair. Uh, thank you, Leah. That is not such great news, but um, I'm glad to know that they're on it. It would be super wonderful if they could have that person before the May retreat because the May retreat could bring that person up to speed fairly quickly and let them kind of get to know the group. So I would, whatever we can do to strongly encourage the appointment of that position so that they can make the May retreat, I would uh, uh, pass that along. I don't, if you need me to do something, I'm happy to do that. Um, Okay, so we have uh, other new business. Uh, last time we tabled the out of cycle requests uh, conversation. And um, I think we, uh, we can certainly cover that if, at the retreat if we want to, uh, or we could probably spend uh, 10 minutes on that right now if we wanted to do that. So any thoughts on that? All right, no great thoughts on that. Um, well, go ahead, Ron. Mr. Chairman, uh, Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative. I'd like us to have a discussion on this issue, but I'd rather have it as part of a broader strategic discussion during our retreat rather than spend, you know, just a handful of minutes on it right now. Um, I, I don't know that we would necessarily deliberate and and resolve, you know, make right. resolution of the issue in the next 10 minutes. So I'm, I'm, I just soon put it off till next month. Okay, if nobody objects to that, we'll add that to the agenda for uh, the retreat to have some discussion about that uh, process. Cause we probably will be talking a little bit about the uh, NOFO process 
and uh, what we want to do there in the coming years. So that can certainly be part of that discussion. Okay, with no other new business, uh, that leaves us at the calendar. Um, you can read that in May, we have our retreat. And then we'll have, uh, then in June, right, right following behind that, we'll have the draft of our NOVO. Uh, and uh, in, in July, we'll approve that NOVO. So are there any other questions before we adjourn? Any other comments? Okay, I would uh, accept a motion to adjourn. Mr. Chairman, Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative, I move we, move and we adjourn. Thank you, Ron. I'd second that. Thomas Howell, Lawrence Border Realtors Representative. Thank you, Thomas. Any discussion? Seeing none, I'll call the roll. Thank you again for attending today. Thomas Howell? Yes. Thomas Allen? Yes. Janet Reed? Yes. Rebecca Buford? Yes. Sarah Waters? Yes. Dana Ortiz? Yes. Shannon Ori? I think Shannon had to drop off. Ron Gacious? Yes. Monty Soka? Yes. Uh, that motion passes 8-0. We are adjourned. Thank you for your time today. Thank you.